Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans, which is available as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Get more information about me, plus all the interviews with all the most wonderful people, literary agents, editors, authors, all the great folks that make publishing go round. Available at middlegradeninja.com. Head there, you'll have the time of your life. Uh, my guest uh, today is, by saying this right, it's Louisa Phoebs. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, it's exactly how you say my name. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I figure after a decade of friendship, I'd, I'd pretty much have it down. <laughs> Lisa Phipps. Oh, my God. I'm so proud of you. Uh, a decade we've been critique partners and working hard. And here we are uh, the week well, the week of uh, your, your, your debut launch novel, Starfish, which will be available Tuesday for folks listening to this uh, pre-Tuesday. For the rest of you in the future, hi, I'm so glad you found us. The book's probably <laughs> available now. Go get Starfish by Lisa Lisa Phipps. Uh, so Lisa, I will pretend that I don't know things about you. I'll just let you uh, introduce yourself. I don't do other people's bios and I don't talk about other people's books because I, I want to keep friends in this industry. Um, so if you would give the esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Oh gosh, let's see, where will I start now? Um, but I just have to say that when you say my name, it sounds like you're trying to do this fake German accent really badly. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Was is that? Um, but anyway, my name is Lisa Phipps. Like he said, always spelled with an F and not a PH. Uh, you will never find me if you Google me the other way. You will find other people who are probably far more interesting, but you know, you won't find me. And um, I was born and raised in Kokomo, Indiana, which is about 45 minutes north of Indianapolis, which you've probably heard about. And I um, went to Ball State University and go cards and got a degree in journalism. And I was a journalist for way too long. I was a writer, editor, managing editor. And then I transitioned into marketing and now I'm the director of marketing for a public library in Indiana. And along the way, I have always wanted to write children's books. And so I did. <laughs> I wrote Starfish. It's my first novel. It's a middle grade novel in free verse. And it comes out March 9th, like you said, um, or if we're in the future, which is kind of really funky to think about, but um, it's already out. So, um, gosh, I'm it's not boring. It's a post-apocalyptic wasteland, and the only things that have survived are cockroaches, this podcast, and copies of Starfish. <laughs> so the poor esteemed audience who's living a miserable life is in luck, because when they find this podcast plus Starfish, my God, the, the apocalypse won't seem so bad anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's like winning the lottery. <laughs> so uh, lots to, to unpack. What's your first memory of wanting to be an author? Oy vey. Um, you know, I tell people that when I was little, I was always reading and I always had a book and paper and pen or pencil until I was allowed to have pens. You know how it is when you're little, they don't trust you with a pen. 
And uh, they trusted me. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> they didn't trust you. Okay, so we've discovered something about Lisa. She's not allowed to have sharp objects. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so, um, but I was always sitting underneath the Rose of Sharon tree in my backyard, which I say it was a tree, although it's technically a bush because it was so big. It was just huge. And um, I would sit there and I would read and I would write and I would draw. And then when they cut it down, um, only because uh, for a stupid reason, um, they cut it down. I went searching for another little sanctuary and my neighbor had this pine grow, tree grove. And there was this little spot near the base of a couple of the trees where it kind of and I had bug problems or something, but it allowed me to enough room I could squeeze in there and and then sit down and and have it as my little fortress. But I've always read, always written, and always drawn. So I can't remember a time where I wasn't wanting to write or wasn't writing. Did you ever see yourself doing illustrations for one of your books? Actually, yes. That was sort of my plan was to be an author and illustrator. Um, back when I was in school, and you know, we've talked about this, I'm, I'm a young child. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we've known each other since for 10 years, and we met when we were 12. And so um, I'm young. And, uh, but when I was little, um, they didn't have a lot of like, advanced placement classes, they did what they called stretch classes. And uh, they put me in art stretch because they were either, well, she's either going to be in art stretch or music stretch or um, something with English and grammar and writing stretch. So they kind of fought over me a little bit. They weren't sure which word put me because I had, that's, that's my, that's my wellhouse, those two things, you know, writing and then music was big too. Um, <clears throat> but they didn't have a lot of kids who were great at art. So they're like, you know, we really want to pump up our art program. So they put me in there. And then I took private art lessons for years. And um, I was, and so I thought I would be like an artist who also writes, you know? And um, so then in high school, I had this art teacher that I did not like. <laughs> and um, so I dropped out of art and I was just going to take <clears throat> some blow off class just to tick her off, quite frankly. And um, <clears throat> my friend who was, I was a sophomore in high school and she was a senior and she said, take creative writing because, you know, it's a blow off class and all the seniors are taking it. You'll be the only sophomore. That'd be really cool, right? Because sophomores being around a senior is cool. And so I did. And as soon as I sat down, uh, someone else, someone else came in and it was this guy from the basketball team, the star of the basketball team, whom I had a huge crush on. And he sits down like right catty corner in front of me. And I look over at my friend and she starts grinning because she knew he was going to be in the class and she knew that I liked him. And, you know, she was just, it was like this thing. So anyway, the first thing we did was write a poem. And because the goal of the teacher was to get us published, she entered our poems into a poetry contest, contest at Indiana University Kokomo. And mine won something, I don't know. And um, so then as a class, we read the five top poems 
And the teacher was like, don't, don't evaluate Lisa's because, you know, you've, you've all read each other's poems already. Well, of course they hadn't read each other's poems because they're seniors and it's a blow off class and they're not going to do their homework, <laughs> right? But they had no idea this was my poem. So when we circle up, right, they, um, they all had chosen my poem as their favorite. And I, I hadn't, obviously, because actually I really like this other one. And uh, so got around to him and the teacher was getting frustrated. He was like the next to last person. She's like, people, I said, don't pick Lisa's because we've already read it. And they're like, oh yeah, well, we didn't read it. <laughs> and, um, but he, he looked at me and I mean, he really looked at me. Like he saw me for the first time and I'd been in, like Band Avatar, I see you, that kind of thing. Yes, I see you. And um, but he, um, you know, I've been in classes with him for almost a year, and he probably would he probably wouldn't have known me if he ran over me with his car, you know. But he looks at me, and he really looks at me, and he's like, "You wrote this," and I'm like, "Yeah." I actually, I nodded because I couldn't talk, <laughs> and um, and he's like this is really good. And I was like, you know, because I'm speechless. And how do you know me to ever be speechless, Rob? Right? So well, you know high school gravity. you, I assume, was uh, probably about the same. <laughs> so the gravity of this moment, if you know how speechless, how few times I'm speechless in life. And, um, and then he said, no, you're like really good. Like, you're a really good writer. And, and then he's like, can I have a copy of this poem? And I'm thinking, dude, you've got it in your hand. But he wanted like a pretty copy. So I typed him up one. But what he never knew was it was a love poem about him. Isn't that the funny part? I think that's the funny part. You didn't make but, it uh, more explicit when you typed up his special version? <laughs> that's the other podcast, the one that comes on after midnight. And it's not geared towards George Silver. No. Um, <laughs> Stay tuned for that esteemed audience. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I did not. I, I was extra careful. I was so, I wanted it to be perfect. And, um, but anyway, and then when I gave it to him, he was like so excited because I thought by the next day he'd forget, right? But he, he was so excited. But that, so that kind of changed. I was like, it started making me think, well, maybe I should be a writer who illustrates, you know what I mean? So it just kind of flipped everything that I had thought. And then I got into college and it was so hard. Ball State has a really good art program and it's really hard to get in there. I mean, you have to be like a declared art major and be almost ready to graduate before you can start taking classes. So I was just like, well, I don't want to have a minor in it. You know, I mean, I was just like, oh, I'm going to be here like extra years just to get this minor in art or something. So I let I let the art go. But I did take private watercolor lessons for about five years as an adult. And I started back up in the spring this year. So I, art's a very big part of my life. But I don't think I'll ever illustrate because I am not that good. And I, you know, because I've been out of it for so long, it feels rusty to me. You know, it would be like trying to write after not writing for 10 years. You know, you just feel clunky. Um, but 
I love, it's relaxing for me and it's, it's a whole other outlet for me. And it's just fun to see what I can do. But so, did that answer your question in a very long, long way? That was a wonderful story. Uh, made more wonderful by the fact that I know that you and this gentleman have been married for 40 years now. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes run into him, like not run into him, run into him, but I like see him out and about in town. And I just want to go up to him sometimes and go, do you know? <laughs> but I don't. You should, you should go up, uh, give him a copy of Starfish and be like, that wasn't my last poem. Here's a bunch of poems and then sign it and just write, I love you real tiny on it. And just, <laughs> then just wait, he'll come to the library and <laughs> that romance that we've been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think his wife would like that at all. No, probably not. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> just, just write, I love you both. And that will solve the problem. <laughs> there you go. There you go. No. So, <laughs> so okay so uh you realize that your talent as a writer can uh bring you uh all all the attractive fellows that you desire uh and that changes uh your mindset then so going into to college you switch over so when do you decide that reporting is reporting a goal in and of itself or is it i'm going to be a writer but until i can support myself that way let me report Exactly. That's exactly what it was. I call it the Hemingway, Mark Twain route, because um, when I when I told my guidance counselor I want to I want to write books, they were like, "Oh, but you can't write books when you're 18. They won't want you." Now, of course, they would love to have an 18 year old who could really write a good book, but back then it was like, "No, no, you've got to cut your teeth. You know, you got to earn your chops. You got to earn your way." And so. Um, they said, you know, you should you should go into you know writing for newspapers and magazines, and so I did. Um, and now I curse them. No, <laughs> uh, it was actually you know it was a really good career in that what it taught me to it taught me a give me it gave me a really good ear for dialogue um, because I've listened to so many people talk over the years. Like I know, like when I'm writing. When I'm reading a book and someone will have dialogue in there, I'm like, oh God, no one would ever say it that way, <laughs> you know? And I'm not being rude. It's just like, you can tell they haven't listened to a lot of people just talk, you know? How people drop their Gs or, um, or how they pause or any of that stuff. And, um, and then it also, you know, I picked up so many character traits because I met so many different people. I mean, I interviewed uh, Billy Graham. I interviewed an astronaut. I interviewed, um, I don't know how many lawyers. I interviewed people who had trained llamas to square dance. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, in, I'm intrigued. Where right? are you square I mean, dancing so, llamas and, and why would someone devote their uh, time to this? Square dancing, square dancing llamas, kid you not. It was funny because it was one of the stories that kind of went viral. Like David Letterman wanted them and, and Jay Leno. And and uh, so like they broke their, like they got so many calls it broke their answering machine. And um, then they, they had people like calling my family members, like the news media calling my family members trying to get to my number because it was unlisted. And it was crazy, all over Square Dancing Lomas. 
but um, well, I, I think know. we've answered the question of motive. Obviously, for great fame and fortune, that is why you would teach llamas to square dance. That makes sense. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, what are we doing writing books we gotta get some llamas <laughs> I, know. I know right but they they have these llamas and they just wanted to have like they had a llama farm and they just wanted to have fun events there to explain why they had the llamas and what llamas were good for and blah 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 and so they taught them how to square dance as you you know held on to them and then anyway um but that's the kind of stuff it gave me it's like it just gave me this whole open door to see all kinds of moments. I saw people at their absolute best in life and I saw them at their absolute worst, you know, like um, I did a story on a bank robber, a cross-dressing bank robber. Um, he dressed like a woman hoping that that would be his disguise, right? And that so no one would figure out it was him. And so um, he wasn't really a cross-dresser, but he just cross-dressed just to, it was a disguise basically. So anyway. <clears throat> like Tootsie, but with hostages. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you for interpreting me. And, um, That's but, why you I'm know. here. <laughs> Always there for you, Lisa, don't even worry about <laughs> it. You, you speak Lisa, um, but, you know, he sent me a letter after they, they caught him and he sent me a letter from jail uh, basically saying that he had hid the money before they found him. And he and he had. They knew that. And that if I would, you know, visit him. In jail. And I'm not going to go any further. You, your imaginations just take off from there. But if I visited him. At one of those like phone booths and hello, how are you? It's a middle grade podcast, folks. What are you doing there? Where are we at? <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, I, what I was trying to say is I've just seen the worst in people. Yeah. I mean, that guy called, that guy wrote me a letter and basically was saying if I'd become his girlfriend, that once he got out of jail, we'd take off together. And I mean, you know what I mean? So it's like all these weird things in all my years that I have like to draw ideas from and character traits from and plots from and and all of that you know that it gave me so it's a it's a gift in, in disguise because <clears throat> you know like I said I've seen the, the best in people and the worst in people and uh everything in between um but it, it was good and plus it just taught me to write cold you know I can sit down at a computer and just write and um, a lot of people get nervous at a blank screen. That that doesn't bother me. And so it had it had a lot of traits that it it was really good now as an author to have had that training. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Now all I can think is that guy might have been your your one true Hannibal, your Clarice. <laughs> Uh, spoilers at, at the end of Hannibal, uh, the book, not, not, not the watered down movie, the book, they find true love. It's so wonderful. Oh. <laughs> I just divided the audience. Half the Thomas Harris fans are, are furious. They know we hated that ending. <laughs> but for the record, I liked it. Anyway, um, <laughs> so that teaches you to sit down and, and write cold. And you're a reporter for how long before you start thinking um, that it's time to make that transition to marketing? Well, 
the problem was I wanted to make the transition long before I could make the transition because um, the economy hit like, you know, snags. And so it was, you know, harder to make that transition when I made it. So I worked six part-time jobs for three years to make that transition transition happen. Wow. Um, six so concurrently? Really, yes. Yes. So it wasn't a fun three years, but it allowed me to get where I wanted to be. And I'm that type of person. I'm going to take, I'm going to do that. If it takes six part-time jobs for three years to get where I'm going to go and where I want to go, okay, that's where, that's, if that's what it takes, I'll do it. And um, so I transitioned out of it. I, but I had been a journalist for uh, 19 years. And then when you get to marketing, I'm assuming, I mean, you're working three jobs, you're doing some marketing. Uh, it's not just straight to the library. When do you decide that a library, that's like marketing with books involved is the most brilliant uh, side day job you could possibly have as an author, right? Oh, it is. It is. And that's why I did that because um, they had a part-time opening and um, I was like, okay, the part-time opening, they have no real plan to make it a full-time job. But maybe if I do what I know I could do there, they'll see that it really should be a full-time job. And so that's when I quit journalism and started at the library and then did five freelance, full-time freelance like jobs. Um, and uh, then they got a new director, the director retired and the new director was like, oh yeah, you definitely need to be full-time. You know, we've got a ton of stuff to get done. We've got grants to write, we've got this. And I'm like, thank you, I've been saying that. <laughs> But I guess the, the other administration just didn't see the benefit of marketing libraries. They thought, well, people will come. I'm like, you know, because I mean, now libraries have to compete with Amazon. They have to compete with Google. They have to compete with people just being able to get anything on, on the internet, their TV, their phone. And, um, you know, you, you have to really get out there and, and sell yourself and get your messages out there because people have no idea all that libraries offer anymore. They just keep thinking libraries are like a warehouse for books and it's so not. And um, so there's so much I could, it's always a matter of, okay, which priority do I, do I have right now? Which priorities do I have on my plate? Because I could, I could go off on a billion tangents and market all kinds of things at the library. You know, there's digital services, there's experience kits, we have a butterfly garden. I mean, there's so much. And um, so, yeah, I made, I, made, I made that leap and then I just stuck with it until they realized they needed a full-time person. And if they didn't, I was okay with that. I was like, you know what? I still get to, you know, scratch that itch because I, that's a dream job. I mean, I'm a writer and I'm an author and I get to work at a library. Okay. And you pay me. Oh, excellent. You know, <laughs> so um, it's, it's like a dream job. And so I thought if, even if I don't go full time, I, I can earn a living and then I'll, I'll get published. I'll, I'll keep going. I mean, I'm not, I've, I've worked since I was 13, so I'm not afraid to work. So it's like, 
if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. See, that's the kind of attitude that eventually gets somebody a debut novel uh, <laughs> blowing up. <laughs> that's that's that kind of persistence and work ethic that it's, it's been a I know it's it's but I, I feel like and I could be telling tales out of school. And we're going to circle back and we're going to talk more about library marketing uh, and the types of things and how that translates to book marketing, because I know esteemed audience wants to know that. But I also know um, that you've got uh, people listing that work very hard on Starfish and wondering, when are we going to mention Starfish available March 9th uh, uh, wide? So we we uh, definitely should start to transition that way. But I feel like I was reading drafts of that 10 years ago um, called something else or at least portions of it. Or am I am I am I wrong on that? How, how when did you start Starfish? Uh. You probably saw some early, 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 early thoughts on it more than you saw drafts because I never knew what I wanted to be in my first book. And so I had the book uh, called Not All of Me, which is totally different title now, if it ever comes out. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's totally different. Um, and then I had, uh, actually I had a middle grade historical fiction book. And so you guys kept seeing, you guys kept seeing bits and pieces of all this stuff. I was just trying to figure out which one do I want to do? Well, I should you point know? out for folks that uh, haven't sat with us at a restaurant for hours at a time when we spin off on long tangents. Uh, we are, we're in a writer's group and hopefully will be again when the pandemic finally goes away called the Young Adult Cannibals. Uh, with several fine, fine writers, including previous guests, Laura Martin. Um, and yeah, I think that's all we need to say. Yeah, so we were part of a critique, I can't say it, critique group. And um, so yeah, so you probably did, but I didn't really start working on it. Like just, I finally committed to myself, I think more than anything and said, you know what? This has to be my first book because if I only get one book published in my whole life, this is the story I want to tell. This is my heart. This is my soul. And so I thought that's the one you lead with, <laughs> you know, I mean, the one that, that you had, that you think about all the time, the one that you dream about, the one that just resonates with you not only as a person and as an author you know as a person and an author but it's like so that's I decided that's the one to lead with and it was so personal the story that's why I was afraid to go with it first it's not I mean there's there there are other stories obviously that I love just as much but this had a very personal connection to me because um you know Everything that happened to Ellie didn't happen to me, but a version of everything that happened to Ellie happened to me. And, and it's very, it's very um, personal. And so I finally thought, you know, there's, I mean, it's one thing to share that kind of stuff around a table in critique group. It's another for thousands or whatever to read it, you know, and, and, then, and then give their opinions on it, you know what I mean? Um, and even though you guys were not, you didn't hold back, you know, you, I mean, that's our group was known for making each other cry during critique time. It was like, okay, 
literally we would make each other cry. People, you know, people might think we're exaggerating, but we did because we were honest with each other. We were like, hey, this- I want credit. I always cried later when you people left and I was alone. <laughs> I kept True. my tears very private. <laughs> but you always confessed that you cried. So I did. That's true. But because we, and I think that was good too, because you don't want anyone telling you, hey, this is great when it's not, you know, you don't want that. That's not going to help you. And, um, but, you know, it's one thing for, you know, six or seven or eight or how many of us there were the different times to get their input and their feedback and their opinion, even if it was harsh, it was another to throw that out in front of the whole world. And, um, so I think that's what made me so hesitant to really commit to it. But once I committed to it, it took me probably a solid year and a half of writing. Scott, oh, I've got all kinds of questions about the the many different um, shapes that this, this book took, especially once uh, I came onto the scene and provided my inspiring notes. Oh my God, that probably made all the difference right there, I assume. Uh, but before we get into to all of that, we should probably, for those people that haven't just read it, that are, as we speak, adding it to their carts, um, getting it from their, their library, uh, making sure that the copy is on its way to them, um, give us uh, an overview of Starfish. What do we need to know? Starfish is <clears throat> the story of Ellie's journey. And Ellie is uh, 11, about to be 12 and she is bullied relentlessly because she's fat and I do use the word fat because fat should be a descriptor word just like tall or blonde it should not be an insult and we have made it that in our culture um you know when you say you're fat you're saying other things you're saying ugly stupid blah 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 but um but she's bullied relentlessly because she's fat. And she's not just bullied at school, which a lot of people, when they hear the word bullying, think of school. But she's bullied by society and she's bullied at home. And, um, you know, there are certain places you expect to be safe in the world or you at least hope to be safe in the world. And that is especially home. And when home isn't a safe place, it's a totally different dynamic for a child. And, um, it's not that it wasn't physically safe for her. It wasn't an emotionally safe place for her. And um, so anyway, in this journey, she goes from um, being bullied relentlessly to starting to realize that maybe there's something wrong with the people who are so cruel instead of something being wrong with her. And then she advances to realizing that she has a, she has the right to take up her place and space in the world and to be heard and to be seen. And that's what starfishing is. Um, it's all about stretching out and being who you are and, uh, and being happy to be who you are and being happy with who you are. And, um, you know, if you do some Google searches, uh, you'll find that there are very few middle grade books on fat positivity. Um, They're very, very hard to find. Um, Most of the fat positivity books you're gonna find are YA. And um, so the the kids are experiencing this when they're 
when they're in, you know, elementary, junior high, um, that is when the majority of the bullying is really bad. And I think everybody can, can attest that junior high, if we could just skip over junior high, we'd all be better off psychologically. Junior <laughs> high is a horrible time in, in, your, in your life. Um, I don't know if anybody feels like they fit in in junior high, but um, I myself was extremely attractive and beloved by all, all three years of junior high. It was incredible. <laughs> all three years. It's funny because at my school, it was two years. So when people say three, I'm like, did you flunk? You know, but no, I know. Uh, <laughs> Just an extra year of pain because that was not the experience. It was, I, I you know, had the uh, uh, ridiculous acne and every, everything else going on and the whole, the whole place, uh, everybody stinks. Uh, nobody knows how yet to do proper hygiene. It's, it's just a horrendous time to be alive. <laughs> it's the worst. It really is. Yeah. But junior high in my school was just seventh and eighth grade. So when people say three years, I'm like, did you flunk? And then I think, oh yeah, you're in the six, seven, eight people or whatever, or five, six, seven. I've heard some of them are, but, um, but yeah, so, but it's, that's what it's about. It's about her journey. So, um, Lots to, to, to unpack. Um, let's start with why, uh, if you could only publish one book, why is this the book you want the world to, to say, oh, Lisa Pips was here, she wrote Starfish? I think because, first of all, there's just so few books like this out there for kids. And yet, um, you know, I think it's 70 some percent of Americans are fat. And yet, if you look at social media or literature, you would think like it was 5%. Um, you know, if, I mean, if, if you looked at representation, right? I mean, tell me, a, tell me, tell me 10, you know, skinny or average size actresses and you can whip them off and then tell me 10 that are fat, like not just Hollywood fat, which is what size four and up is, you know, in Hollywood. Um, but seriously, I mean, tell me 10 that are fat. I mean, so there's over 70% of Americans are fat and yet where's that representation? It's not in clothing, it's not in the media. It's, um, you look on Instagram, you know, it's all about, you know, skinny, beautiful people. It's not about your, your normal people. And, um, and so it's just, it's, it's so needed because there's so little of it out there. That's one reason. Um, another reason is because I don't think I was, well, I know I, I, I was pretty bold. Um, I was very real and authentic about what it's like to be a fat person. And it's kind of funny I don't know if the word funny is right. I always, I say the word funny for everything, but um, it's odd, funny, unusual, interesting, whatever you want to say. When I get reviews and people say, did you read my diary? You know, because they feel <laughs> like, and, and they'll tell me that's exactly what happened. You know, I had one, one, um, one reader say, I remember looking at my shadow and realizing it was bigger than everybody else's and always being ashamed of my shadow, you know? I mean, I tried to put in everything that I knew a fat person would go, yep, yep, 
you know, because um, I'd even done this little poll, uh, very unscientific, but um, with my Facebook friends years ago, and I was just like, um, you know, if, if you've been struggled with your weight or your body image, you know, feel free to message me. You don't have to put this out there in public, but tell me some of the worst things people ever said or did to you. And oh my God, it's the most messages I've ever received on anything in Facebook. And people just, you, it, they're, you know, their mothers, their grandmothers, some of them were just in college, but I mean, they're all ages. And, but they had these, these things that just still haunt them. And, um, and I think if this could be stopped, like just stopped, if we could just stop this madness of being so cruel to people just because they weigh more, I think of all the people who would have better lives, you know? I mean, um, I had someone the other day who had read the book and she reviewed it and she gave it a good review, but then she sent me a private message and she said, I have to admit that there was a part of me that was hoping that she would lose weight in it and then she could be okay because I keep hoping that for myself. And I was just like, you know, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. It's haunting. Those, those things that people do to you as children can stay with you. And especially when it's about your body, you know, and, um, and so that's another reason. And I think the third reason is just because I, as a child and I, when I was enduring all the bullying, I didn't, I didn't stand up. I didn't speak out. I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't starfish and I regret it. I regret it. And, um, you know, I didn't for other reasons, which I'm not going to go into, uh, on this podcast, but there, I just, um, I thought, you know, if this is the thing you get a do-over, like in Groundhog Day, if you get a do-over day, I, I want to go back and I want to do that over and I want to starfish. And maybe I could have, you know, changed a lot of people around me as well as myself. And so for all those reasons and some more is why this book means so much to me. Because, and because you know, it's one thing to tell a story that's completely fiction. And it's another thing to tell a story that's fiction based on a lot of what's happened to you. It's much more personal. And therefore, I think it just means something different. So is it to be alligator people and robot bees next book? Are you thinking you're going to stay with the uh, personal? Um, actually, for upcoming books, I'm, I'm working on a, a few. And so just check my social media for any announcements about what I'm doing next, but um, there will always be a part of me in every book. That's just, I think that's true of all writers if they really admit it. I don't know. I think it was, um, well, yeah, it was an author that I did a panel with recently who said, you know, you always think, oh, this is completely fiction. And you start writing and then you go, oh, I'm tapping into this that happened. Oh, I'm tapping into this that happened to me. Oh, I'm tapping into this. Because writers, you know, to get that emotional truth in writing, because even if it's fiction, you have to have an emotional truth. 
to get an emotional truth in writing, you normally have had to experience that, you know? Um, and I know like our good friend, Shannon Alexander and her books were based on the loss of her friend who died of cancer. So, um, you know, she had that emotional well to be able to write this fictional story. I mean, what happened in her two books were not what happened in real life with um, her friend who died, but it was still a cancer story and it was still a story of loss and how you go on after loss. And um, I, think, I think that's what writers do, don't we? Don't we kind of, we have this well and we dip out of it all the time. Yeah, I think so. I make the glib joke about alligator people and giant robot bees, but there are chapters in both of those books I could not read out loud to a group of students or I would cry all over myself. My heart's in there, I understand. Yeah. Um, let me uh, ask, because I've I read that you, and I, I've heard you talk about this, that you want uh, to give for, one, who's the ideal reader for this story, but you want to give the courage and tools uh, that you you hope to impart to them to confront bullies. So, what 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 tools do you hope to impart, and what difference do you think it would have made for you if you could go back, uh, you know, quantum leap back into an earlier version of yourself and and starfish? So, ideal reader, and what do you hope uh, that this will do do for them? The ideal reader is everyone, and I know that sounds like oh, sure, Lisa, <laughs> but really. <laughs> But really, um, and the reason I say that, it's for children for sure. It's written for, for middle graders. But, um, you know, kids who are older, who have younger siblings who are fat, this is a great book for them to totally understand what's going on with their brother or sister or whatever. Um, and then I definitely want parents reading it because one of the things in the book is all the missteps that Ellie's mom makes in trying to deal with, fix uh, her. And parents who have fat children, especially if the parents aren't fat themselves, they, they don't, I, I don't believe they truly intend to hurt their children, but they unknowingly do. And um, almost every comment that I've gotten in private from people who've read Starfish are about what their parents have said to them. And it's almost like 95%. And um, parents make a lot of missteps when it comes to dealing with fat children. And so definitely parents. Um, but I'd also like to see pediatricians read it <laughs> because healthcare when you're fat is a whole other game. It's a whole other universe, it's a whole other everything. Um, and it wasn't until I was an adult and learned to um, start standing up for myself in healthcare that I even realized how bad my healthcare had been over the years. You're gonna see something flip over. I'm going to, <laughs> I've got to plug in my um, laptop, it's dying. Um, but anyway, so I really like that. So if I could get middle graders, parents, and pediatricians to read it, I'd be happy. But, you know, but I really think, and, and I think I got this, someone said to me today, I just want all adults who deal with children to read it. And, 
And I think it's because, you know, especially if you've never been fat, if you've never dealt with your weight, if you've never been bullied about your weight, you have no idea what all those jokes, everybody calls it a joke, all those jokes do to a person psychologically. You have no idea how hurtful they are and how long they last. And um, so I, okay, I think that was a two-part question. One was my audience. What was the other one? Oh, it was a ridiculous Sorry. rambling question. <laughs> no one could have answered it. Um, the ideal audience. Uh, then the second question is if, if you could reach that audience and you can give them the tools oh. that they need and the courage to stand up, uh, what would that do for them? And what would it have done for you if you'd had this book that taught you to starfish when it mattered? Not that it doesn't matter yeah. now, but at, at this time you're, you're right. expressing regret for having that done. Right, right. So part of the toolbox is that, A, you have the right to not, you have the right to say no to all of this bullying. You don't have to put up with that. You know, you might have to tell your parents and they might have to tell the principal and the teacher and then you might have to take it up to the superintendent or the school board, but you keep going until people hear you and stop. You know, you have that right. And that's for anybody. I mean, what I say about um, Starfish as well is that yes, it's about a fat girl, but really it's, it's translatable to anyone who has been bullied for any reason. This is translatable to anyone who's been bullied because they're LGBTQ, because they're of a different race. Um, you know, whenever you're treated horribly and made to feel like a non-person, this, this is what this is about. This is about, you can stand up to all of that and you have a right to say no to it. And you have a right to say, I'm not putting up with that anymore. I deserve better. And you also have a right to ask for help. And I think that's the important part of the therapy, how her going to therapy is that, you know, um, kids often don't talk to their parents about things that are happening at school. I never did. I never came home and said, hey, mom, someone made fun of me today because I'm fat. I never did that. Um, first of all, because it's embarrassing, you know. Second of all, she had her own problems. <laughs> she was a single mom, you know. Um, I was never and, that thoughtful toward my parents have their own problems. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> You're a better child than I was. <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know what? I think it's just because that was just sort of my role in the family was, um, even though I was the youngest, my role in the family was uh, understanding where my mom was emotionally all the time. Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm an empath. So I, I just picked up on that stuff. But, um, you know, so, and, and the other thing is when you have bu been bullied so much and you've dealt with so much hatred for so long that when you start dealing with it, it's going to get kind of messy. You know, it's not clean and easy and it's not pretty. Um, the emotions that you un uncover and, and the feelings that you have. And um, it helps to have someone, a professional, to guide you through that. And so I think another tool that they get other than, you know, they've got standing up for themselves and saying, no, I, I don't deserve this. I'm not gonna put up with it, is learning how to reach out for help. Um, I think that's a skill every person on the planet needs to have because, um, you know, 
we all have to have help sometime from somewhere, somehow. I mean, there, when, you know, you've, you've got a, a child who's an addict, you've got a, a dad who has cancer or whatever. I mean, think of all the things that you cannot handle by yourself. And so learning how to, to say, I can't do this alone, I need help, is a huge thing to have in your toolbox. And I think another one is just having intrinsic self-value. Um, because if you don't, it's hard for you to, um, even if you succeed in life, it's hard for you to feel that happiness, that joy, that contentment. And um, I think if you look at like Hollywood people, right? They have tons of money. They have all this fame. Um, and you know houses they have material possessions they have all this and so many of them you can tell struggle with intrinsic self-value and self-worth or they wouldn't be doing the things that they do that make the news right they wouldn't be i'm i wasn't even going to name them all because i'm not trying to shame anybody i'm just saying you you see it just because you're successful doesn't mean you have self-value or self-worth. It just, um, and so I think knowing your self-value and self-worth is a huge tool to have in your toolbox. So those are the three ones that I think would probably be my top for wanting them to have. And I think if I could have those tools and if I could go back, I could, I could do the Michael J. Fax go back in time thing or whatever, um, I think I would have, the tool that I think would have helped me the most would have just been talking about it. Um, I never talked about it. I never talked about anything that happened to me. And I had a pretty traumatic childhood, lots of different child traumas, and I never talked about any of it. And um, so I think um, being able to talk about it is, is the first and biggest step that you have to make for, for all the other steps. You know, you have to start talking about it to be able to stop it. You have to start talking about it to reach out to get help, you know? So I think being able to talk about it is, is also a big deal. And that's probably what I, I needed most as a kid. So when, uh, and this might be too personal a question, in which case just tell me, shut up, Rob. You know how to do that. Uh, you've, done, I do. you've done it plenty. It's been a very necessary skill these past 10 years. Um, but when did you become aware of your intrinsic self-worth and how did you go about that? That's a really good question. You know, for me, because of my past, it will be a lifetime journey. Um, and I'm trying not to get too deep or too too personal because I don't want us to get off track of starfish and the, the available the, March 9th. Yes. <laughs> I love that. That's so funny. Um, but, uh, you know, like I referenced a few minutes ago, I, I had a very traumatic childhood. So, um, a lot of bad things to deal with. Um, very like onion layery stuff, you know, it wasn't just one thing, it was this, and it was this, and it was this, and it was this. And um, so for me, 
I mean, I compared to where I was even three years ago. Yeah, I'm, I have intrinsic value because I'm seeking it. You know, I'm seeking the full enchilada, right? The whole enchilada. Um, but I think, I think until, uh, until I die, I'll probably be, be working on all those things that happened when I was a little, because there were so many things and, you know, unpacking them all takes so much time and so much energy and, um, not that I'm not doing that, but, uh, does that, is this making any sense at all? It does. I was hoping you had a take two of these and call me in the morning type answer, but it sounds like it's a lot of deep personal work that's ongoing. Yeah, yeah. Because what are the know, easy I'm... answers, Lisa? I don't <laughs> like work. <laughs> you're you you know you're talking to the girl who, when the microwave has ten seconds left, goes ah, it's close enough, and stops it because I have no patience. I, none, none. I have coined the phrase, and I want to get rich on it someday. Is Patience is, is, is a virtue, impatience is a gift, and I'm gifted. That's my phrase. And, um, but, you know, like Ellie, though, you know, she had such a great support system with her dad. And um, other than her weight, you know, she had, she had it a lot easier than little Lisa did, you know? So I think that's, I mean... I think that's why, you know, it's it's not an easy journey for me. I wish it was like flip of a switch. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Without spoiling, and I'm uh, all aware that not only can I spoil uh, the current version of the book, but also previous versions. I've got all kinds of spoilers, so I got to be careful when I when I talk about the plot. But early on, uh, early enough that I I, I feel to spoil. Then I want to talk about writing uh, poetry. Um, but as far as just the plot goes, uh, early on we we, we see her um, part of her uh, support system being stripped away. Her her friend is moving, so that's a big event. Why is that the place to start this book? That was intentional, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. Um, I remember when it wasn't. <laughs> um, it's intentional because studies show that fat people have fewer friends. And that is because studies show, I mean, I don't make this up. That's why I keep saying studies show. Um, studies show that children, even in preschool, get the message that it's not cool to hang around fat people and fat people are bad, that they're lazy and they're dumb and ugly. <laughs> uh, so um, fat people don't normally have a huge support system of friendship, you know? And so she has one really good friend and if that friend moves away, whoa. You know, that's like taking the rug out from underneath her. And so that's why I wanted to start with that. I wanted to torture my character that way. Um, as we writers say, we torture our characters. But, um, but basically it's just being real. You know, if you have very few friends and you're, or just one really good, good friend and they move away, then where are you? You know, 
So. I had one really good friend in middle school who moved away. It's, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard moment. It is. Fortunately, he moved back and I made, I made some other friends, but that is a lonely, lonely day. The day that your <laughs> one good friend, when you're going through something as traumatic as adolescence moves away. Yep, exactly. When you lose what you think is a friend or you lose a friend, it's devastating, especially the, especially to children. It's hard enough, it's hard enough to lose a friend when you're an adult. You know, if they pass away, they move away, whatever. But when you're a child, that's your world, right? As you disconnect from your parent and you connect with friends, their friends move away, you know, it changes who you are. It changes your identity. It changes your support system. It changes everything. Well, I want to talk uh, about the, the pros, about some of the uh, techniques on display that people can enjoy in Starfish. But I feel like uh, we should emphasize how what tremendous uh, praise and, 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 the, and the level of reviews that, that Starfish is garnering, and I assume is going to go on to, to win all the awards, but you've got Booklist starred reviews, Kirkus starred reviews, Publishers Weekly starred reviews, School Library Journal. I mean, look, this had a charming novel in verse about a girl struggling with self-worth. They think you're charming. Phipps first is skillful and rooted in emotional reality. Skillful. These are yeah, Phipps bursts out uh, to the middle grade scene with her debut, a verse novel that shines because Ellie's keen and emotionally striking observations. Um, and, and it just goes on like that. People uh, across the world um, spreading their arms like a starfish to embrace starfish. And after so many years working toward this moment, this debut novel, my friend, if you don't have the, self, the, the intrinsic self-worth after reading some of those reviews, it, it's not going to happen. And I know you've got a, a jar there behind you that I'm hoping you'll tell the esteemed audience a little bit about. That is. Um, <clears throat> the jar back there is um, something actually I did as a journalist because journalists are typically not liked. <laughs> It's a very tough profession. Well, now you told um, us about a prisoner who seemed to like you very much. I know. Know. <laughs> yeah, in a whole new way. Um, oh my God, yeah. But, uh, you know, you normally get these calls like, you know, I'm gonna kill you, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna sue you, you know. Um, so I remember, you know, when you get that first call that said, I really like that article. You did a great job. You, it was, you, you told the story exactly right. Or, you know, another time, like, you know, you do, you know, you've done a good story if you've done a bad story on someone and they're still okay with it because you were fair. You know what I mean? And so, um, so when I would get little cards or emails or phone calls or whatever, I would, I would just keep track of them. I would put them in a folder and put them in my filing cabinet. And that way on the days that I got <laughs> the horrible phone calls that, you know, said horrible things to me. I mean, you know, um, things that I wouldn't say out loud on your podcast. Um, no, after we'll, we'll we'll stick around and you tell them all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds like good character stuff. You should have <laughs> a whole other segment. 
after hours, after hours, <laughs> Rob, after hours. Um, but I, I, I just learned to do that. And it was just a way of, you know what, you have a bad day, you go through that file and you go, okay, you know what? It balances it out. And um, so when I started this, I thought, you know, I'm gonna have people who don't like this book. Obviously, there's going to be people who don't like the book. Not every, when does any book get 100% everybody in the whole world loves it? You know, that's just why it's so shocking that yours is <laughs> <laughs> only disliked by illiterate people. <laughs> and as soon as they learn how to read it, they'll like it too. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it's like, I just wanted there to be. A, a, a visual representation. I'm a very visual person since I have my art, you know, um, artist, my artistic nature. I'm very visual. And so I thought I want an, a visual representation of all the good things that they've said. And that way, you know, when, you know, I get a bad review or someone says, I read your book and I hate it or whatever, then you're like, okay, but I did something right because I reached these people. You know, and um, and then that also helps because sometimes when I'm writing, I'm like writing and the other day I was writing and I thought, okay, wait a minute, this isn't working. I need to, what am I missing? What am I missing? And, you know, you go through that as a writer and I finally figured out how to do it like two hours later, but um, I looked over here and it was so nice because I thought, okay, Lisa, you did it once, keep going. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, you've done this. You, you, it's not like this is your first rodeo. It's not your first you know, bicycle ride. You know how to do this. And um, because you know, all artists, whether you're a writer or an artist or a musician, actor, you know, all the different arts, we tend to be very insecure people. <laughs> I've heard that about other folks. Never experienced <laughs> myself, but <laughs> right. And so, you know, it's it's like so every time we start. And I was watching an interview with I think it was Matthew Reese um, mm -hmm. who did the Americans. I think it was him. But he's like every time you 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 know you finish a job, a movie, whatever, and then you start to go get another job. You you know you do the the um, right. What is what is that called? Um, yeah, audition, um, that you're like, oh, I'm never gonna get another job again. That's it, my career's over, you know, kind of thing. And I think all people do that. I think musicians do that after they finish an album or a tour. I think um, actors do that after they finish a gig. Uh, and I know writers do it. I <laughs> just follow some writers on Twitter and you'll know they do that um, because they're like, I can't write worth crap today. And everybody's like, yes, you can. And they start, you know, they start helping them feel better. Um, but that's what that's about. And so if you've said something nice about Starfish and I've seen it, it's there. And for uh, those of you listening to us who can't see the jar, uh, it is full of, of, of scraps of paper and, and inspiration and, and positive affirmation. So what do you think, Phipps, after all these years, uh, working hard on this debut novel, now it comes out uh, to universal acclaim. Uh, I read some of the excerpts from the reviews. Uh, I'm seeing people tweet, 
uh, that, that every time I see them, I'm like, yes, yeah, that's what people should have been saying all along. Where you been? Thank God you're here now. Do you, do you feel it? Do you feel that sense of I've made it? It happened for me or has that hit yet? I think it hasn't hit yet. Um, and I'm literally sitting next to the boxes that were delivered the other day that have starfish in them and I haven't opened them yet. And I know most people like open them right away, but I was trying to think what would I do during the virtual launch party? And so one of the things I'm gonna do is open it during then because then you're gonna get the authentic Lisa, <laughs> hopefully not too authentic. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you're going to get my reaction to what that's like when an author opens their box and sees their book for the first time. Um, so I don't think it's going to be completely real until I open these boxes. And um, I also don't think it's going to be really real until, well, it kind of got a little real today because the boxes arrived at the library and they were opening the boxes there and getting them ready to process. And it was just like, I was like, don't show me anymore. Just that one picture is enough for me to post on social media for the library. That's it. I'm done. I don't want to see anymore. Um, but it's like it's your wedding day and you don't want to see your spouse yet. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. But yes, I'm assuming it's very similar. Um, you don't want to, I don't know. It's part, it's part, oh my gosh, if this is real. I guess it's part of like, oh my gosh, if this is real, I've actually done it. You know, it's just like, I did, you know? And so it's starting to feel more real, but it still doesn't feel real. It feels like, what? I, my book, people like it. <laughs> um, but I am glad though that it's, the, the main thing that I love hearing um, there was one one review that just, I thought, you know what, if I could only have one review for this book, this is the this is the review that I'll remember. And it was by this woman and she'd, she'd won one of the arcs that they were giving away and she read it and she's loved it and she's been having all her family members read it. And she had her niece read it and her niece is, is fat and um, always wore like black clothes, you know, all the rules, those fat girl rules that I can never say fat girl rules very quickly, but, um, you know, wear black, don't show your flabby arms, all that stuff that they, you know, all the rules. And, um, and she's always, you know, trying to hide behind her clothes, get, you know, extra big clothes. And as soon as she read it, she asked to go shopping for new clothes. And that just made me, and that was like, that right there is starfishing. There's a little girl who's like, crap. No, I'm gonna go buy stuff that I like, that makes me feel good, that represents my personality. You know, maybe I'm gonna wear yellow today instead of black for a change or whatever. And I thought that right there is what I'm talking about. You know, when a little girl is willing to give up her black shirts and go find something that's what she really wants to wear and not what she feels like the world tells her to wear, that's 
exactly what I'm trying to accomplish. And it made me feel so good because I was like, ah, <laughs> I reached her, I reached her, you know. That is incredibly touching. Now, I've, uh, ooh, okay, well, let's, let's move on to the next thing. Um, all right, you know what? Let's uh, talk uh, a little bit about um, Freeverse. So why is Freeverse the way to tell the story? And when did you realize, because I, I remember a few drafts that, where you went back and forth a little bit between straight prose and then back to Freeverse. So why is Freeverse the best way to tell Ellie's story? There's a couple of reasons, one of which is that it's just, it's just who I am, really. Um, this is how I think, this is how I write, this is how I see the world, really. Um, prose, the problem for me with prose is that you spend a lot of time with what I call... Um, fluff, and I don't mean that in a bad way for anyone who writes prose, but it's the stuff you have to throw in there to make it all cemented together, right? Like if someone, yeah. okay, so if someone's in a car or a boat and they've got to get from the boat to the car, right? You got to see them walk up the plank. You got to see, you know what I mean? And it's like, you know, that walking up the plank and that walking into the car and buckling their seat belts or all that little minutia to me feels fluffy as a writer. I just want to get down to the, the heart of it. I want them on the boat. I don't, I don't want to see, I'm just going to tell you they're on the boat and you're not going to know how they got there and you're going to have to be okay with it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, because, you know, your mind will fill in the rest anyway, right? And so- obviously. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you. I'll put that in all my books. Um, but I just want to get to the heart of the story and get to the the, the meat and and the bones. And um, and poetry allows me to do that. Free verse allows me to do that. Um, and also because I I've always been a big fan of poetry, and it's funny because. You know, when I review my life, I was, my mom, uh, I had a bunch of her stuff and she's in a nursing home now. And so I keep going through all these different papers and stuff that she had. And she kept everything I've ever written in my whole life. And um, I was like, oh my gosh, I've read, I've written so much poetry over the years. Why, why didn't I just naturally write this in poetry? But I never realized you could until I read Sonia Sohn's um, Stop Pretending What Happened When My Big Sister Went Crazy. And so um, when I opened up her book and it, and it was in free verse, I thought, oh, well, then that's what I'm going to do. I can do that. I didn't know you could. You know what I mean? It was like, I thought there was this rule. Everything had to be in prose. And then I realized it didn't have to be. And, um, you know, the, the the book had been out for several years by the time I found it, but it was like revolutionary for me. And I thought, oh, thank God, because that's how I really want to tell the story. And that's how it's coming to me, you know? And um, so if that answers your question. It does. Um, 
and there you are able to convey a lot of a lot of information very fast. Uh, it made me feel very much like an overwriter because I am <laughs> uh, appropriately so. Um, but uh, I mean, you'll put a, an excerpt from the radio and oh, we're in a car. Um, that makes sense. Uh, and we don't need though. We don't need to know what kind of car. We just need to know that that that's not that's not what the point of of, of this individual poem uh, is. Uh, and then Saga Soames, um, I know that she's got a lovely blurb uh, along with uh, previous guests, uh, Padma Brigatraman. Um, and uh, Sonia Soames has got a blurb on there. I know you reached out, you got in touch with her because she's thanked pretty profusely in the acknowledgements, yeah. What's the, what's the Sonia Soames story? Okay, so um, I read her book and it, I don't know if you've ever read Stop Pretending, but it's like, I still, I don't know how many times I've read that book. I love that book. And so um, I love that book. And then I'm a big fan of Highlights Foundation, which offers workshops for writers. And um, I'd, I heard that she was going to be teaching on free verse. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make that happen. So um, you have to apply and all that. But I got to be at her workshop and, you know, get her advice on writing and tips and tricks and, and all kinds of, you know, um, instruction. And it was amazing. And we, and we bonded and we became like, you know, friends. And so um, she wanted to stay in touch and we did. And then, you know, she has just been like a little cheerleader and for me ever since. And she's, you know, oh, this is so good. And so they said, do you know any authors who you think would blurb for you? Um, and I was like, I'll ask Sonia. And they're like, oh, that would be a good one. Cause you know, Sonia Sons is really good. And um, she was so happy to do it. And she's so wonderful and amazing. And, um, and then ironically, um, Carrie Ann Holt, who also wrote a blurb for Starfish on the back, I met her at that same workshop for Novel and Verse. And her, she had just, her first, I think it was her first book that had come out. It was the book Zombie Eats Brains or whatever it is. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I, I know what you're talking about. I can't think of the title offhand. It's all in haiku, I believe. I think that's the one that's all in haiku. But um, so it's so that's how I became friends with um, Carrie and Holt, Holt, and we stayed, you know, we're social. She's in Texas, so we're social media buddies. But um, so she, she's the one who, and she also wrote a blurb for me. Um, so that was a very, very amazing workshop to be a part of. It was Linda uh, Oatman High as well, and um, Virginia Ewer Wolf, who wrote Free Verse. Um, make Lemonade series. Uh, so it was an amazing workshop to be a part of. So that's the Sonia connection. You, I mean, you, you toss that out there like that just happens, but I know it doesn't because you, in the, in the before times, uh, pre-COVID, pre, pre um, you were out there at, at workshops and, and foundations conferences and writing retreats on a regular basis. How often before this madness started, um, were you were you putting yourself out there and getting to know so many different authors and, and editors and publishing professionals? 
When I moved to Texas, I thought, I, I, I need more. I need more than my job. I need to start thinking about this book. You know, I've, I've, I've had all these books in my head for a long time. And I thought, how do I, how do I even do this? How do I get an agent? How do I get published? How do I do this? And so I joined SCBWI and I was a member of the North Central Northeast Texas chapter. And um, so I went there and, you know, they were, they did what I call foundational instruction, which was like, you know, how to format a manuscript and how to write a query letter and all that. But then they also did, they did that regularly, but then they also did, they would have people come in. We had um, Erin Murphy, the agent, come in, came in one time. We flew her in. That was when she still lived in Arizona. Um, we had her come in and she was talking about, you know, how you get an agent and what agents can do and can't do and all that. And, um, and so then I volunteered to be on the conference committee and we had, uh, we brought in Paula Danziger and she's now passed, but, um, and so I got to meet some of these amazing legends, you know, in the publishing industry through SCBWI. And each time I learned something else, it was just like, even just little tricks, you know? And, and I thought, I, I loved being a part of it. It was like um, a family, you know? And I think, you know, a, a good critique group feels the same way. It feels like your own little family. And um, so I really enjoyed that. I don't have a lot of close family um, because of the way my family treated me. Um, so it was like, oh, and these people speak my language and they have the same passion that I do, you know, and, and writers are always really good about sharing what they know. And so you could ask anybody and they would tell you the answer. Whereas in journalism, it was always like, go find it yourself, you know? And so it was this whole other world and I loved it. And so every time I felt like I needed something else, I would find a workshop or a conference to go to. And sometimes I just, a lot of the things I went to was just to see, just to see more about, about the industry. Like I went to, when I uh, lived in Texas, I went to the um, Texas Library Association conference down in Houston. Because I just wanted to see what their conference was like. I wanted to see what what's it like if you're an author from the point of an author, and, and you walk into the convention center, and you know you've got um, Penguin has their their booth and and all this other stuff, and you and you it's just like it inspires you, and you're like, oh, that's what they do, you know? It's like it's like Oz and getting behind the curtain, you know, and seeing, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I did that for years. And so the most, I think some of the ones that were the most transformative for me were um, the, uh, I went to Chautauqua. Uh, Highlights used to do a conference at Chautauqua, New York. And I love that. And then um, there I met um, Stephen Roxburgh, who had been with Farrar for years. And he really encouraged me. Um, it was kind of funny because I don't know if you've ever met him, but he's, he's pretty blunt and which I prefer, 
I really do. I prefer people to be blunt rather than, you know, cryptic. And um, he, he, he said, you know, this, this is really good, but he had, he'd, he'd, he'd made the other people in front of me cry. So I was afraid. I was scared to death that like, oh my God, he's going to hate. Cause I loved, I'd seen their work and it was, I thought it was good. And, <laughs> and he made them cry and he would have fit in really well in the cannibals, let's just say. <laughs> and, um, and then, but then he liked my work and I was like, okay, okay. So if you made her cry and you like my work, you're not just, you know, you're not just humoring me. You know what I mean? And then that made me feel like, okay, if this guy thinks it, maybe I, maybe I have it, maybe I have it in me, you know, that it's not just a dream of mine. There's potential there. And so then he offered a whole novel workshop that I went to um, at Highlights. And then I did the novel in free verse, which was the next one. And then I did one with Patty Gauch. Um, and it was a master in voice workshop. And that was, she's an amazing teacher. She, she has, really has a way of teaching. And um, so those four things I think were the, the most crucial for my career and, and my future. Up until this moment of being on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, of course. Of course. <laughs> this is next level. Welcome five. to the top of the mountain, Lisa. <laughs> but right. you, just, you went out there and you put yourself out there over and over again. You went to where the writers were. Mm-hmm. And that helped you make the, the connections that not only helped you craft a masterful novel, um, but I know in one instance got you to the point where you, you were connected to your literary agent. I don't know how much how much of these uh, tales uh, we want to tell outside of school. Oh, well, I can tell this one, I think. Um, but just just to step back two seconds is that... Um, you want to enjoy the view from the top of the mountain? That makes sense. <laughs> yes. Yes, let's do that. Uh, but you said something, and I think I think there are a lot of writers who try to do this all on their own. They try to read a book. They try to Google information. They try to read that uh, that annual book, The Writer's Market, and they think they know what to do. And I'm not saying that all of that doesn't have some really good information in it, because it does. But what I'm saying is, if you're not connecting to writers, other writers, I don't think you're going to make it in this world, the writing world, because you're going to need them for all kinds of things. You're going to need them for critique. You're going to need them for support when you're having a hard day. You're going to need them just to bounce ideas off of, you know, and it's really is a community. And um, I think that's, that's really what's important. And that's why I try to do as much as I can. Like when people ask me to write blogs or whatever is because I'm not, I'm not going to try to hold all this information in. I mean, if you want to know, I'll be happy to share it because I, I think it's important for people to, um, to know where they're at and um, how to get where they want to go. Um, but now I'll go back to the real question. Um, so I- Was there one I've forgotten? <laughs> I remembered this time that we're even. Okay. Um, not that I'm keeping score, but uh, 
so I had done PitMed on Twitter. And um, Sarah Schmidt, who writes YA. Author of she, It's a Wonderful Death, available everywhere now. Exactly. Hi, she, Sarah. Um, <laughs> she was, um, she had retweeted, because she's in our critique group, she had retweeted my tweet. And um, my, her agent, which is Liza Fleisick with Liza Voice Agency, saw my pitch and was like, I want to read that. So then I sent it to Liza and Liza really liked it. And so she called and offered representation. And I was like, well, there's the look problem. <laughs> you know, I'm not, because I had, I had already sent out a query and I was just waiting to hear back. And they had, oh, there's your cat. Um, parents every episode. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, I uh, I was waiting to hear back on a query from another house, and um, but there was a delay, and uh, I didn't know there was a delay. It turns out the person was on maternity leave, but um, anyway, but I connected so much with Liza. I thought I, no one else can be my agent. You know, because she got me as a person. She got me as a writer. She totally got where I wanted to go with my career. And she totally loved and, and supported Starfish. And so I was just like, you know, it was sort of, now we're going to get to the marriage analogy, analogy. You know, it was like one of those things where, you know, you're the one. And I was just, I had goosebumps and she was crying and she had goosebumps and it was just like this. This is this is the relationship that I need because it was instant connection and relationship. This and is over tweets or over a phone call. How how does this relationship call. get established? Okay, phone call. Okay. One phone call, multiple phone calls. Uh, I think two, two, because we had you know the initial and then a follow up. Um, but she's just amazing. She's amazing. And uh, I'm not saying there aren't other good agents out there, but the thing I am saying is you have to find the agent that's right for you. And uh, she is perfect for me. She's perfect for me. Um, and uh, so that's how that happened. That's how that happened. Well, there you go. You went out and you made uh, fantastic writer friends. Now you're on the most amazing podcast ever, and your other writer friend uh, was able to to help boost you a little bit and put you in touch with the uh, with the agent. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the star with the rainbow should go above us now. The more you know, that's <laughs> that's what I mean, though, about people who try to go it on their own. They're 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 making a big misstep there. Lisa Phipps, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, never seen a flying saucer. I do think ghosts exist. I'm not sure what they are. You know what I mean? I don't know if they're actual people who haven't found their way to wherever they're going. I don't know if, if they're demonic spirits. I don't know what they are. But... I've had some really weird experiences in life that make me go, oh, 
something's out there. I don't know what it is. Anything we can elaborate on or better better kept uh, for our book later on? Um, Steve Dottius loves a good ghost story and or demonic entity, whatever you got. The, the reason I say that is because when I was a little girl, I woke up one night and it was like, I felt a presence staring at me. And when I woke up, I looked into the hallway and there was this man standing there. And he put his, you know, finger to his mouth like shush, you know, and don't say anything. And I wasn't scared. I was in elementary school and I, I wasn't scared. Um, I knew he wasn't there to hurt me. And, um, and he smiled at me and then he just kind of disappeared as he walked away down the hallway. And then I just went back to sleep, but it was, I mean, it was so vivid. I mean, this is decades later, I remember it. And, um, okay, so here's the, here's the spooky part. You know, my dad, my dad died when I was 13 months old. And the only memory I have of him is seeing him in the casket, which is really weird. Excuse me for scratching my nose. I've got allergies, so my nose gets itching. Um, it was the cat through the, the, the zoom, I think. <laughs> the cat through the, yeah, through the zoom. Um, but anyway, um, it was probably a few months later, my mom was going through photographs. And I was like, well, who's this guy? And it, cause it was the guy from the hallway. And she goes, that's your dad. So I, cause you know, I didn't know what he really, what he looked like. And, but I was like, that's that, that's the guy I saw in the hallway. And she's like, what are you talking about? And then I told her and she's like, that must've just been a dream. I'm like, how could I dream about someone I'd never seen before? You know? So that's the kind of stuff that makes me go, hmm, what's out there? So probably not a demonic entity in that instance. <laughs> I'm gonna hope no. That would be. I think you know. I think you know when you're around evil. I think you know. I've I literally have interviewed people who. Who I thought, this is what evil is, you know, and um. Yeah, it wasn't an evil whatever it was. <laughs> when we do the middle grade ninja after dark show with Robert Kent instead of Rob Kent come back and we're going to get into that story. <laughs> but for tonight, because I know that if left unchecked, you and I will sit uh, in an outback for four or five hours at a time <laughs> and, and, have a, and have ourselves a good visit. But uh, watching the, the, the show here, and I know that it's time to think about looking toward uh, wrapping things up. Before we go, I wanted to talk more about marketing, your experience marketing for the library, and what is that bringing to you and preparing you now to market your debut novel? What's most effective for you for marketing during these crazy quarantine times? I think there are a few things, one of which is, um, I know the importance of social media and responding to people on social media. A lot of people don't respond. Um, you need engagement. It's not just about throwing your message out there. You need engagement. And I think a lot of writers miss that. Um, I think a lot of people too, they try to be too, um, 
they try to like have this image of who they should be or, or what they should be like. And I think that comes across as phony. You need to be who you are, you know? And, uh, you know, if you're silly, be silly. If you're really straight laced, be straight laced. It's okay, whoever you are, it doesn't matter. But don't try to be someone you're not because it really comes through that you're being not real, right? So like, for example, with the- Oh, great, the tell us which offers have the worst social media presence. I'm ready. <laughs> I am not the one to, seriously. I mean, uh, but like the library, for example, is, um, you know, when I'm, I monitor all of the library social media and I'm always responding, good or bad, I'm responding. You say something negative. I'm okay with that because I at least get to hear what you're thinking and maybe ways we can improve or, you know, maybe you said something I didn't even realize was happening or that, you know, how it came across to the public, whatever. Um, so I always listen to what people say in their responses to my social media because, you know, I want to, I really want to know what they're thinking. And um, so that's one. And then another is, being authentic, like for example, you know, we're we're a library and we have like this standard voice that we try to portray this persona. We try to portray in all of our, you know, marketing materials and promotional materials, our social media, and we stay, we stay true to it. And you need to do that, like I said, as an author as well, just figure out who you are and be that person. Um, it also helps that I know a lot of how like promotional materials, like I have behind me that um, mini pop-up banner, you know, it's a tabletop pop-up banner and you can buy those for less than a hundred bucks and they're helpful like during a Zoom to promote your book, um, you know, and then once COVID dies, gets under control or whatever, um, you know, when you have a booth in an event, you can get a true pop-up banner, which is like seven feet tall and it's right there. And it, you know, it gets people to, to notice your table where you're signing books, whatever. So all of those kinds of things and where to buy them and how to design them and you know, whether you need a CMYK or an RGB, you know, things like that are the technical end that I have learned between the journalism and the marketing careers that I've had. Um, and then also just technology. I'm pretty tech, technological, technologically savvy. Um, I'm not saying there aren't some glitches sometimes. Like for example, whenever I try to send an attachment of a photo on my phone, it just pastes it in the tech in the email, and I'm like, <sighs> so when I'm on the fly trying to send something, and it does that, I'm like, I really do know how to send an attachment. <laughs> But my phone is not letting me, you know. But I mean, other than those kind of technological weird things that happen, I, I mean, I do know, you know, technology and that helps. Because I remember one of the first things that um, Erin Murphy taught us, which it was scary that she even had to say it was don't use a dot matrix printer. <laughs> because she had taken some writing samples to evaluate. And I guess somebody in the group was still using their husband's dot matrix printer because it worked 
Typing up novels on their Commodore, sure. (laughs) I mean, you know, and I was embarrassed that our group even had that problem, but um, uh, it just, I don't know. Um, You know, you have to be a certain level of uh, technologically literate. You know, you really do because you're going to be emailing things. You're going to have to have social media accounts. You're going to have to have a website that you maintain. And um, so that I've gotten through my years of marketing as well. Um, And those are some of the main things I think that have been very transitional into the author world. You sound so proud of you. This is just tremendous. Look at you with your your debut novel. There's my buddy from way back when, and she's a big deal. She's starfishing out for the whole world to see. And I wish you nothing but but all of the success with this book. And when the next book comes out, come back. We'll do three hours, and we'll do the after dark portion of the podcast. All the stuff that we censored uh, this this time around. Uh, my last question is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back toward the start of your career. Uh, toward the start of when you were writing, maybe back when you were a reporter, whatever, whatever you choose, whatever would be most convenient to go back and give yourself some advice specifically about writing that would have made a difference, would have made your path to this point easier and might make easier the path for someone who's listening or watching, what would you go back and tell yourself? You know, my journey was a little different than some people's um, because I was a caregiver for my mother. My mother has late stage Alzheimer's now. And I've, I was her caregiver for seven years when she had Alzheimer's, but I was her caregiver before that as well. She almost died in a wreck. um, And I took care of her for like eight months after that. And before that there was something else, you know, I'm, I'm the responsible one. So um, what I did was I put my life on hold to take care of other people. And um, I don't, whether it's writing or whatever you do, you know, sometimes you have to make that decision and say, I've given enough and it's time for me. And I, I'm a caregiver by nature. It's not just because of duty. It's just who I am, probably because I'm an empath. But, um, you know, it it was really hard for me to say, you know, when mom needed something for me to say, I'm sorry, I'm going to work on my book. You'll you'll just have to watch TV for a while. I'm not I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that. And. I wish I would have said yes to me and no to other people more. I know that sounds weird, and but I think that's probably transferable to people maybe who have children. And I know that's, you know, you do have to take care of your children. I'm not saying that, <laughs> but I'm saying that, you know, sometimes you have to know when mommy, daddy needs a break and it's time for mommy, daddy to put their dreams, you know, because I think that's, that's not a bad thing for your kid to uh, be at a babysitter for a little bit or be with grandma an extra day of the week or whatever in order for you to um, fulfill your dreams. I think that's great for your kids. Yeah, 
you know, they, they need to learn to be independent anyway. And, and for them to see you make your priorities and make your dreams come true, I think that's a great lesson for them too. So I think it's applicable to other people, not just caregivers. But I think that was probably the biggest problem I had to overcome was um, making time for me and what I wanted. Where can esteemed audience uh, find you online, uh, follow you, learn more about starfish, all that good stuff? Um, if you remember that my name is spelled with an F and not a PH, you will find me. Um, my email is, I mean, my um, website is authorlisaphipps.com. And then if you go author Lisa Phipps on Twitter and author Lisa Phipps on Instagram and author Lisa Phipps on Facebook, you'll find me. You'll notice there's a branding there, which is also a marketing trick. <laughs> I mean, if I have my name three different, four different ways, it's hard to find me, you know, on one name in Instagram, one name on Twitter, same name everywhere. So, um, and then they can order the book through Penguin Random House um, the website. And I can't say enough, by the way, about how wonderful they are. And my editor, Nancy Polson, who is amazing. She's a genius, genius, genius. Um, but uh, so you can order through Penguin Random House. You can order through your local independent bookstore. And then, you know, with uh, Amazon and all the other channels or your local library. Uh, as always, esteemed audience, for more information about me and more importantly, interviews with hundreds, thousands of authors, literary agents, editors, folks I know you're going to find interesting, head to middlegradeninja.com, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans, purchase Starfish by Lisa Phipps. What a, what a week you have ahead of you when you've got both of those on your device. Uh, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.